This episode is brought to you in part by Thomas Nelson, publisher of I Want to Matter. Your life is too short and too precious to waste. Written and narrated by New York Times bestseller Kathy Lee Gifford. Available now everywhere you get audiobooks. Welcome to The Table Podcast, where we discuss issues of God and culture. Brought to you by Dallas Theological Seminary. Well, hello. Welcome to The Table Podcast, where we discuss issues of God and culture. My name is Bill Hendricks. I'm the Executive Director for Christian Leadership at the Hendricks Center. In uh, 2020, the Public Religion Research Institute uh, came out with a study that was entitled Census of American Religion 2020, and it was an unprecedented county-by-county look at religious identity and diversity in the United States. And the research found that over the last few decades, the white Christian proportion of the U.S. population has declined by nearly one-third, hitting an all-time low in 2018 of 42 percent. And white evangelical Protestants, which are the oldest religious group in the country, have experienced the greatest drop in affiliation over the past decade. That's shrunk from 23% in 2006 to 14% in 2020, which leads to the question that we want to discuss today on the table, why are people leaving the church? And to help us do that, it's my deep privilege to uh, welcome and introduce Dr. Sam Perry, who is an associate professor of sociology at the University of Oklahoma. Uh, He also has his Ph.D. from the University of Chicago and is a DTS grad, getting his THM in 2008. Sam, welcome to the Table podcast. Uh, It's a privilege. Thanks for having me. So we want to get into this whole issue of why people are leaving the church, but even before we jump in there, I always like to kind of get the backstory of how you – well, what was your background? Where Where was growing up for you? And uh, particularly because you're a sociologist, you know, what piqued your curiosity and interest in pursuing sociology? Sure. Um, so I, I grew up um, in a Christian home, certainly. Uh, my, my, my dad went to Dallas Seminary in the, in the late 70s and early 80s. Um, was on, he and my mom met on crusade staff, and I was raised in Fellowship Bible Church hmm. uh, in, uh, in Richardson, Texas. Um, I think – and so – Raised as raised as a Christian, certainly uh, raised in the church uh, by godly parents who love the Lord and and uh, and were a, a tremendous example uh, for me. Um, I I would say I kind of early interest in um, the kinds of things that I study now came from uh, my own experience in my family. Uh, my parents adopted two African American girls when I was four and six years old. So, uh, and, and they were not sisters, but they were both, uh, adopted at different times. And, and, um, because we adopted my, uh, oldest adopted sister, Beth, when I was four, I mean, I, I grew up never, never not knowing, uh, having black sisters, right? Like it was just it right. was something where it was just, uh, this was dinner table conversation for us to talk about issues of race and identity, um, and how people were perceiving us as a family and the various kinds of issues that we, we faced and issues of prejudice and, uh, in some ways, that alienated people in my own family uh, who who were who were you know from Alabama or from uh, from different parts of the country where that was just a little bit more taboo. Yeah. 
Um, and so I think I grew up um, with kind of something of a proto sociological eye for understanding uh, uh, experiences of of diversity and how faith shapes families and communities. Um, and so going into college, uh, I was a communications major. I wanted to be a pastor at the time, but I also was just fascinated by sociology because it was asking the kinds of questions that I was really asking myself my whole life about uh, 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 just about uh, uh, racial prejudice, race relations and, and faith and uh, those kinds of things. And so um, I went to seminary at DTS uh, and I, you know, I, I had a great experience at Dallas Seminary. I was a New Testament major and and uh, and uh, was tremendously fun. Uh, learned I, I had a passion for research and writing, and it was actually at that time I, I think God was redirecting my my own vision of of my own gifting, my own understanding of gifting. I'd always loved teaching and preaching, uh, but I think it wasn't until I came to seminary at DTS where I, I I understood that I oh wow I actually I really enjoy research and writing and I'm really good at it and I think I can I, I have a gift for that kind of thing. Um, I was I was counseled against getting my PhD in New Testament studies um, by by some seminary professors who said you know it, 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 you may you may stand a better chance of, of finding employment. Um, <laughs> I don't even know if I should say that, but I, I said, they said you you stand a better chance of finding employment if you if you if you go some other some other route. And and for me that was easy. It was just you know I love sociology. I want to I want to pursue that. And I was fortunate to get into the University of Chicago, uh, which is a great program. Yeah. Uh, and now University of Oklahoma was my first job out of out of grad school. So that's that's where I've been. Of course, nowadays uh, a, a college student decides they're going to study sociology. People are like, "What do you want to be unemployed?" Yeah, <laughs> unless you get a PhD. In it, unless, you know, exactly. That's true. <laughs> well, that, that's fascinating. So you you're a committed Christian. You you've had training in theology as well as sociology. Let me ask a question, and in asking this question. Uh, I don't mean to insult your intelligence. I mean more to sort of expose my own ignorance. Um, define what sociology actually means and what it's all about, if you if you can. Yeah, absolutely. So, and this is something I'm very uh, cautious in explaining to my own students because I think they come in to my classes with their own perceptions of what a sociologist is and does, and. And, and, and some of that has been my own experience. So like I, I dropped my first undergraduate sociology class because I, the, the guy I took the class from, I mean, it, if you, if you Google a picture of Karl Marx right now, I mean, the guy looked like, <laughs> the guy looked like Karl Marx and, and frankly spoke a lot like Karl Marx or I perceived, you know, he, he was a, a wild eyed, uh, uh, guy that, that uh, I felt like was very, and I was a Christian in college. I mean, I felt like the guy was very antagonistic. I felt mm. like he was provocative on purpose. I didn't feel like there was a lot of science to that social science uh, going on. Um, and it wasn't until I actually took some more sociology classes that I said, oh, no, this actually, this could be quite data-driven mm. uh, and interested in in gathering evidence and information about our social world in a way that is productive and helpful. Um, and that is the kind of sociology that I, I aim to do. I, I tell my students that I am a, a social scientist, uh, that I am interested in, in gathering facts and information and data so that I can draw informed conclusions about how the world works. Uh, that, does not, that does not necessarily mean it. it um, and in fact, it not, I, 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 should, I should make that case stronger. At, uh, I, I, sh I, I stress to my students that, that if I'm doing my job right, um, 
the information that I share should inform your faith, but it, it really doesn't speak to the empirical reality of your of your faith. It, it is not a I don't speak in terms of ontological or epistemological um, uh, uh, truths. That's not that's not the job of a social scientist. That, that my job is to is to uh, speak to the human side of of everything that we experience and what we can gather information about or empirical evidence mm-hmm. about. And so that's how I see sociology, as opposed to say something like psychology, which is focused primarily gathering information and data about how the human brain works in interaction with others. Uh, sociology is far more interested in gathering data about society and the collective in the aggregate and how social systems and social environments shape the individual and vice versa. Yeah, I was going to ask how sociology contributes to a particularly Christian understanding of the world. Yeah, I, I mean, I think uh, uh, I write about that all, all the time, and hopefully I'm, I'm persuasive enough to, 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 to sell what I do a little bit. But I think uh, I think sociology contributes to a Christian understanding of the world in that um, uh, I, I, I think we we get lost as Protestants and evangelical Protestants. I think uh, we come with our own cultural uh, predispositions to think in terms of uh, we and we're also as Americans. Right. Uh, we we tend to value the idea of the individual as as somebody who is almost in isolation and somebody who is an agent and making decisions on their own and and that God deals with on an individual basis in their own personal faith journey and and uh, sociologists uh, I think come with a, a perspective. You know, we actually are all we're all embedded in relationships and contexts. Uh, and those relationships and social contexts and those experiences shape uh, the interiority of our lives, and they shape our expectations, and they shape our culture. Uh, I would say sociology has the most to contribute in terms of how Christians understand culture uh, and understand the cultures that end up shaping us and the decisions that we make. Also, sociology uh, powerfully shapes our understanding of human demographic uh, processes and transitions that are powerfully shaping our own religious reality today uh, in the United States in ways that we often don't understand. Uh, and sociology also contributes an understanding of social structure, uh, and that is how how the organization, the structural organization of our relationships, the rules, the resources, the laws and policies, uh, they shape our own experience as individuals. And so I think we would be remiss as as Christians if we did not acknowledge a lot of the truths that I think a sociological perspective can bring to the to the table without becoming i mean you know i and and i think i get the question a lot or at least i have not so much anymore but i've gotten the question before of you know wow you're a sociologist so so when did you lose your faith <laughs> or something like that right and the, the implication the implication being something like you know i i i can't imagine a sociologist and a and a, and a committed believer uh Being in the same, in the body. same human person yeah and i think that is because of an assumption of sociology that is unfortunate that assumes all sociologists are secular leftists or, mm-hmm. or, or something like that. Uh, and it also comes, I think, with an unfortunate assumption that, that all committed Christians must be right-wing yeah. uh, uh, Republicans. And yes, if, if that is what you believe, if that is what you understand as a Christian believer and if that is what you understand by a sociologist, then I get why that you would feel like those two things in conflict, but there is a lot of diversity among sociologists and Christians that I think that is uh, understood rightly. I think both can can be good sociologists. Yep. So by by the name, which includes social, you know, it, it sounds to me like uh, sociology sort of forces us uh, 
to get beyond our individual perspective. It, it reminds us that we are in relationships with a whole world of people, whole society of people, whole culture of people. And by sort of stepping back to take that more coordinated, collective view, um, we often can see things that we would miss if we're simply in our own self-absorbed uh, perspective uh, and just taking care of what's in front of us. Oh, I think, and I think that's uh, not not only just to remind us, but I think it actually is. It should co- correct our paradigm to understand human beings as fundamentally social uh, creatures. Mm. That we are that that there is no. Uh, there is no hypothetical individual living off on their own, like a like a, a a person who was raised by wolves, without the without the without the influence of their parents and their community and their environment. And there are not only the influences of our kind of immediate community, but there are layers upon layers of social influence, both uh, within our global and national and uh, and, and uh, familial community based context uh, that all have something to say about the kind of people that we end up being. And that we contribute to in, in our own ways. And so that isn't to say that human beings don't have agency. As a matter of fact, sure. this is kind of one of the constant sociological conversations of to what extent do, do human beings have agency and contribute to their own futures? And, and, and to what extent is there a, a social structure that is so determinative in the kinds of things we end up being? Um, and there's an appropriate middle, a uh, complicated kind of nexus yeah. of, of individuals making decisions uh, and empowered by God to be agents and to, and to make voluntary choices. And at the same time, doing that within a context that constrains a lot of those choices and their information. That's fascinating. Well, today we want to focus that inquiry specifically on the choices that people make, uh, whether to identify as Christians um, or, or not. And uh, that what's interesting is that fewer and fewer people are doing that. Uh, the number of religiously unaffiliated Americans, so-called nuns, uh, is actually on the rise now, and it hovers around 23 to 25 percent of the population. Um, I'm curious to the extent you're you're in touch with with that development, and if so, you know what's behind those numbers. We, how do how do we have uh, you know the percentage of of Christians sort of diminishing in the big picture, while people of no faith or or not necessarily not of faith, but not of the Christian faith or any other you know sort of designated religion, seems to be growing now up, upwards to a quarter of the population, right? And particularly among younger people. Yes. Uh, so. Um... I think there's a lot of information out there, and and so I'm I'm happy to uh, to kind of share uh, the the available data, uh, like what I think social scientists are able to kind of discern with broader aggregate surveys and this, the kinds of trends that we see. I will say uh, I think uh, a truth that needs to be uh, brought up, and I'm not we're not remotely the first people to ask that question, but I think uh, a great book that I want to uh, plug <laughs> here, uh, back from the early '90s, exit interviews from Bill Hendricks is on my is on my shelf and. Wow. An important truth that you, uh, an, an important truth that you, I think, drive home from your own interviews toward the conclusion of the book, is, is that there is no one reason that people leave uh, the church, and there are multiple stories, mm. uh, and people are individuals, and each individual has their own kind of story and experience, and so we we should be cautious about kind of like 
speaking so confidently in the aggregate that we just kind of explain away everybody's experience. And, and so um, I think that's 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 an that was an important point uh, to recognize in your book. And I think it's still true 30 years, 30 years uh, later, uh, subsequently. Um, I think some new de- new developments, though, um, in terms of this this process, w- one, we should we should observe that what is taking place in the United States is, is actually a delayed um, a, a delayed process of what has gone on in Western societies hmm. uh, for a long, long time, like, a, you know, a gradual process of secularization um, and not just secularization is in like the institutions of our society are gradually becoming uh, disestablished or disconnected from any kind of religious uh, faith, uh, but that individuals are, say, attending church less or um, more likely to identify as nothing in particular. Um, we don't see a, we don't see a really rapid rise in, say, atheists and agnostics. Mm-hmm. I mean, I think Gallup has come out with some recent data to suggest that 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 is uh, seen an uptick recently, but other data sources don't suggest that it's been. This has been driven by atheists and agnostics. It's been more people just disaffiliating uh, and saying, "I'm I'm nothing. I'm nothing in particular." Um, doesn't it doesn't necessarily mean that they are? And as I think, as you point out in your book, uh, thirty years ago, um, what we're seeing now, I mean, is 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 similar in that we we don't necessarily see that people are um, not praying or not interested in spiritual things or that they don't believe anything at all. Uh, actually, the the the. The, the the percentage of Americans who believe in life after death uh, has has stayed flat. It's right, right around in the in the seventies, and it, hmm. it doesn't move, and it doesn't even move among young people. So yeah. that is that is kind of almost a core belief that does not change. But we do see a disconnect from say formal religious affiliation, um, and that being kind of a leading identity. So there's a couple of things going on there. Um, one that I think is a relatively I don't mean a new development, but I think one that it, that we are now coming to grips with, and this is kind of just uh, becoming clearer, uh, is something called the backlash hypothesis, and that is that is a result of if I could back up a little bit, if we could if we could think of secularization in in the in the in terms of our our religious identities becoming less salient in terms of the of the primary or the primary identities that organize all of our other identities. So it, it used to be the case where, I mean, Americans were divided up into Protestant, Catholic, and Jew, and like these were kind of central identities, and not only just Protestant, but like the denomination that you were involved with. These were important uh, identities. You were a member of the Methodist Church, and that was something that mattered to you, and it distinguished, and you didn't marry Presbyterians or something like that. You know what I mean? Like it was something that was a central organizing identity. Uh, and and those kinds of identities cut across politics in ways that they do not now. Um, I have some data on this that I share with my students. In the 1970s, there was the a nearly identical percentage of evangelicals in the Democratic Party as were in the Republican Party. Uh, you stood you stood to be just as just as likely to be an evangelical in the de- among the Democrats as among the Republicans. What has taken place within the last uh, four decades, within my own lifetime, uh, is that there has been a an increasing process of political sorting uh, to where. Our political identities and our ideological identities, liberal, conservative, Republican, and Democrat, have become the primary identities that are organizing all of our other social identities, that includes religion, to where you've got conservative Christians who are becoming more, uh, 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 not only just aligned with the Republican Party and conservative politics, but everybody knows it, right? Like that's become becoming something that is, that is common. White conservative Christians are Republicans, they tend to vote that way, and that's kind of how they identify. 
what that is what is what that is has brought about among young people in particular and that's actually been a, a variety of different studies you can see this in a variety of different data sets you can see it in experimental data you can see it in survey data that follows people over a, a period of time that young people are making a conscious choice as they they go into college and young people tend to be a little bit more progressive in their in their views and and, and the society that we grow up in and young people are making choices about the kind of people that they're going to be religiously throughout the rest of their lives. Uh, and they are, they are saying, uh, well, if, 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 if being a Christian means being a right-wing conservative or the kind of person that my granddad is or my parents were, then I'm going to go a different direction. Like, this is something that I'm going to disengage from. I'd rather be something else. Um, and, and so we can actually we can actually track that over a period of time, and that is in fact what we have what we have seen is is young people in particular are, are choosing their politics before they choose, and this is happening across America. But like they they choose their politics before their faith identity solidifies in terms of how they want to to be moving forward. Um, they go to college, and it's not just college; it's about kind of becoming coming out of your parents' household, um, and they. They engage in the kind of the, the traditional process of what we call institutionalized deviance, where they 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 go to church a little bit less because they're young people, they're out from other their parents' shelter. And historically, they always came back, right? Like they got mm-hmm. married, they went to they got families, they got plugged into middle class life, they came back to church. And that was just kind of a pattern that reproduced itself. Nowadays, because of this kind of political backlash thesis, uh, you have young people who are saying, if if that is what religion is. And I have to be that. And you actually have people who are saying that. Um, then that is not the kind of uh, faith experience that I'm interested in. And so they don't walk away from any kind of faith or religious belief, but they walk away from formal affiliation uh, in a way that um, I think has long-term consequences. And that has long-term consequences to the extent that they are raising their kids now in a family right. that is not connected to. So it's a cyclical thing, and it actually becomes something that is self-reinforcing. Like the more young people walk away now, the more likely they are to have smaller families, but also raise their families disconnected from church to where that's just never been something that these young kids have experienced at all. And it's something that is foreign to them. Right. Uh, And it becomes something that's kind of a self-fulfilling, not a self-fulfilling prophecy, but something that's cyclical and it ramps up. Yeah, it feeds on itself. You know, this this term nuns is so fascinating to me um, because I – in all of this research that, that the sociologists do, demographers do, um, you know, they talk about people who identify as, you know, Christian or uh, <coughs> non-Christian or atheist or whatever, and then people who identify as nuns. It, it, I don't know. To me, there's a certain sort of inherent contradiction of terms there. Like my right. identity is none. Like I'm not this, I'm not that, but there's no sort of positive affirmation of here's what I am and here's what I do believe and here's what I stand for and here's what I'm committed to. And, right. and I get the feeling that there's just a lot of people out there that, as you point out, they've looked at what they've been offered and say, well, that's not it for me. And from there, it's just – it's a smorgasbord like, like all bets are off on where they're going to land if they land. And so right. there's a well, lot of people I, just wandering around. Uh, well, I think that category of that category of nothing in particular or the nuns is actually a good indication of kind of what I'm talking about. So, like as as young Americans 
other identities are now taking the place of what used to be our primary identities. And that was kind of like religion, family, community. Right. Now it's become kind of nationalized politics. And that is who you are, like where you kind of fall along that. So you, you have a situation in which these people aren't like, they, they aren't, um, they aren't self-consciously secular people. In other words, if you ask them, like, are you, you know, are, are you a secular person? They might not say, they might even know what to do with that because they don't kind of feel self It's not, it's no longer a master identity to them. It's just kind of like something that they don't think about a lot. They, they would rather emphasize other identities in their own uh, lives um, because they don't feel connected to a, a formal religious organization. Matter of fact, they probably are, they're feeling kind of soured on that. Um, some of it may be, I mean, some of it may be, as, as you pointed out in your book 30 years ago, I mean, I, I've, I've, I've conducted surveys with my own undergraduate students about their own religious journey and, and where they are. And some of them do point to kind of like scandals or some kind of uh, moral failure in the church that they feel turned off by. Right. My guess, though, is that I think for a lot of them, the process of, of identity transition takes place a lot, uh, a lot sooner and and they look at they look at uh, scandals in the church as kind of a convenient like, oh yeah that's that's, that's the, the reason that's, that's reason enough that's justification enough for yes. me to feel good about this 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 slow drift and, and in fact like I've asked students the, those students who have said that they are less religious now than they were as young people before college I asked them you know was it a conscious decision for you to move away from your religious faith or was it more of a slow unconscious drift and. And the, about two thirds of them say it was it was more of an unconscious drift. Well, that's away as, yeah, and that that mirrors that C.S. Lewis line about very few people suddenly decide I'm I'm not going to you know believe in God anymore. It's a slow you know drifting away. Yeah. This episode is brought to you by the Truce Podcast. I'm sure you've been there. You're at an event, a dinner, a small group, and someone says something like, "If you're a Christian, you have to vote Republican." Huh, that raises an interesting question. How did evangelicals like me get to the place where we just assumed we'd all vote one way? This season on the Truce Podcast, we're diving deep into the complexity of the 1970s and 80s to understand how evangelicals tied themselves to the Republican Party. It's a story that involves murder, corruption, redemption, and our need to be heard. I'll be talking with celebrated historians like Rick Perlstein, Pulitzer Prize winners Francis Fitzgerald and Jesse Isinger, and some of the best guests I've ever had. Truce is the show that uses journalistic tools to look inside the Christian church. We press pause on the culture wars in order to explore how we got here and how we can do better. Subscribe to Truce anywhere you get podcasts or listen at trucepodcast.com. So... <laughs> When we look at these macro trends, um, well, l let me ask this question first because it, it's, you know, it's the question I'm sure people in your shoes always get asked, um, and I suppose it's it's a bit of a trick question. So, is everybody in talking about these things? I hear people say, "Well, the real problem is social media," and I, I often wonder. So, is social media um, the the, the cause here that, that that's accelerated something that was there, or is it it is actually more of a symptom of what what was going on elsewhere, and you know just happened to show up with the technology in time to cap, cap, catch that wave. 
Yeah, that's a good question. I think it's, I, I mean, I think it's, it's a both, both and. I yeah. think it's both, a, it is both a, an amplifier of trends that have already been taking place. Because, I mean, I kind of what I've been talking about, it's a, both an amplifier and it's a symptom. Um, so, it, and I'll, I'll speak to both of those. So it's 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 an amplifier in the sense that um, the, the broader sorting trends that we have we have seen, I think people people respond on social media because social media is very polarized and it, and it gives an, a false impression that Americans are a lot more polarized than they are. That is that is kind of a like there 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 is all kinds of talk about social media being an echo chamber where you hear these kinds of like really only one sided narratives and, and and that kind of thing. Really, what social media is very good at because it's only the loudest, most polarized people who, who consistently post on social media. So, for example, Twitter yeah. or something like that. Most people don't post on Twitter. Most people lurk on Twitter. Most people are just kind of reading what's going on. If you're only reading and not really contributing because you're a moderate and you don't really care and you don't and you're not really you don't really care, but you don't have like strong opinions or you don't feel informed, informed enough. Is, is what you're hearing is you're only hearing the most dogmatic and angry and polarized and loud megaphone voices talk about how these two groups of people hate each other and how like these these two groups are polar opposite and there is no middle in between them. And so what that becomes is it becomes a powerful sorting mechanism to say, OK, who who do I identify with and which which tribe is, are, is my kind of people? So social media has amplified that organization where politics and identity now sort uh, where you are religiously, especially among for young people. So if you have any kind of religious faith convictions and you are somebody who subscribes to traditional views on the family or those kinds of things, well, then you quickly learn that there is only one group for me and everybody else is anathema and they're demonic and they're Luciferian, I think right. is, the, is, the, is the most recent word. <laughs> and, 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 if, and if you have more progressive views on, on, on those kinds of things, well, then you learn quickly, like, I have no more place any longer mm. among religious Americans, my group of people is the the liberal uh, church or the or progressive whatever or just seculars in general. So, social media in that sense has amplified the sorting and they've, they've catalyzed it in, in that way. But social media is also a, a symptom of of our broader uh, addiction to inattention, uh, and 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 it is a way that capitalism has, I think, leveraged uh, some some very uh, <laughs> Some very foundational uh, tendencies that we have human as human beings have to to enjoy distraction and to to play around on our phones like they're slot machines and kind of like get likes and retweets and 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 to kind of build identities and test our identities on on social media. I mean, it's one of those things that one of my previous books was about how conservative Christians, how committed Christians experience pornography in their own lives. Um, and one of the things that I found in that in that study was that. Evangelical Christians are are just as are just as likely to be on their phones and on social media and on and connected to the internet as anybody else. Mm-hmm. Like they they are no less likely to be on the internet, to be online, to be at their phones constantly. And so one of the problems that Christians face, even with kind of say like struggles with pornography, is is the fact that conservative Christians are just like everybody else in that we are always almost like cyborgs attached to our phones. Always wired. Uh, and, if it wa- and if it wasn't pornography, it would be some other kind of like click addiction. Right. Right. Like it would, it would be social media. It would be posting things. Online it would game, be kind whatever. of scroll. Yeah. Mindlessly scrolling mm-hmm. and that kind of thing. And, and part of, part of the, the, the connection or the challenge of, of detaching young people away from say pornography is actually a broader problem with detaching them away from 
from just addiction to screens and clicking and all of the things that compete for your attention. So that is a symptom of like a broader uh, uh, problem. Wow. I, I mean, I was going to ask you, and I, I, you're kind to mention a book that I wrote 30 years ago. Um, <laughs> but I must say, after I, I, I write exit interviews, and then, I don't know, 10 or 15 years later, uh, the reveal study comes out from Willow Creek, and I read through that, and I'm like, huh. I kind of said that 15 years ago, you know, and then, <laughs> and then you know, we get to the Barna study, you know, 2019 church dropouts have risen to 64 percent, and Pew Research, and you know, and I'm like, okay, so this is a this is a trend that's been going on a while, with right. people drifting away from churches. I, I guess the question then it looms, you know, why has the church not been able to turn this around? I mean, it's not like this is a new thing that we're just figuring out. I mean, this this has been – there's been a big backdoor to the church for quite some time, and it does – but it doesn't seem like anything's really stemmed that tide. And I'm just curious, you know, if you have any research or thoughts about, you know, why yeah. that might be. So I, I think um, one of the challenges, and I, I think uh, a great new book uh, that has just come out recently by Bob, uh, religion journalist Bob Smetia. Uh, I'm not even sure of Smetana, uh, uh, um, uh, but it's called Reorganized Religion. I want to make sure I get that uh, get that right. I'm listening to it on Audible right now, and he covers all of these kinds of uh, uh, broader trends. Reorganized Religion, I'll read the subtitle. Um. The reshaping of the American church and why it matters. And he's done all of these interviews and he looks at a lot of data. He's a great uh, religion journalist. Uh, the last name is S M I E T A N A. Thank you. Bob, uh, and, um, and one of the things, one of the observations that he makes, and I think this is a spot on observation, is what, what has been going on. Sociologists have been observing this as well. Um, what we're actually seeing, there, there has been a, a trend in church culture. And I mean, Dallas is on the forefront of this, yeah, of sure. course. Uh, but, um, uh, with kind of the, the, the Walmartization of, of congregations, uh, to where, uh, mega churches are, are growing, uh, the phenomenon of satellite churches. And I know they've tried to suppress this a little bit by kind of spinning these things off and giving these things kind of pastors and in individual communities, kind of like the villages, yeah. like Bethlehem and Minnesota and other places. Um, but it does, it doesn't change the fact that, that any, a, a smaller number of churches are now housing a larger number of Christians. And and the mom and pop churches, those small community churches that were in your local community are now being driven out. Yeah. Uh, and, and they're no longer a thing. So it's kind of a big box phenomenon. Uh, and so on, on the one hand, you could see this as a positive that, that more and more people are able to uh, go to these churches and provide. They have. They provide great programs. They have great resources. They obviously. Yep. I think you know. I think wise people are at those churches too. I don't mean to, to trash those places. Uh, and yet, it it is obviously, um, it is obviously easier within those larger megachurch contexts to be anonymous, to be a uh, a free rider, to be a taker, to come and not invest. Um, I do think you have some churches, like I think Watermark is an example of that, that kind of like holds as a, a standard of church membership. Like for you to be a member, you have to re-up every year, you have to be involved in service, you have to be in a community group. Like I think that is a way that people try to fight uh, this tendency. But I think all that to say, like, you know, in, in, our, in our hyper-connected, very, very busy lives, 
where where my kids are involved in five different things a piece and we're running them to and from everything and church just becomes one more thing uh, to the extent that I'm not really connected personally, my identity is not connected with that community and I'm very anonymous and I'm kind of on the fringes, then it's easy for me to put that down and just walk away and get involved in something else. Um, I think that has been going on for a long time now. Uh, and I think COVID uh, certainly was an, an excel, I mean, through gasoline on that, on that fire yes. <laughs> because it, it just created a two year window almost uh, in which uh, people figured out they had other what, options. Yeah, they, they got to taste on Sunday what it's like to sleep in and do other things and go fishing and travel out of town and travel for soccer or kids or whatever. And, and the convenience um, of watching uh, the service in your pajamas. Right. With and, I think, and, and, and I'm sorry, I don't have to tell pastors this, but I mean, yeah. obviously that that comes at the at the cost of, of people saying, um, well, I think I'm just going to kind of keep doing this. And I have no I, I don't I don't feel like I've, I've disrupted my pattern and now I have another pattern. Uh, and um, I think that has really not only long-term consequences, not only consequences for those people's immediate spiritual lives, but the lives of their children and their children's children as this becomes a generational thing where people are no longer growing up. So as we're having this conversation, it's occurring to me that uh, the role of sociologists in our culture may be not dissimilar to what the role of uh, journalists in an earlier time was, which was basically, we're just giving you the facts. Here's what happened, and we're just reporting what's actually going on. Um, but but I, I, at the same time, I, I can't imagine that, that you, you as, a, as a sociologist merely want to be sort of a spectator and a reporter um, and, you know, let the chips fall where they may. Um, and and do do sociologists ever get to the point where they're going, you know, in light of these facts, here's some things you might want to think about doing. And I guess where I wanted to go was, as we've talked about this decline and people leaving churches and, again, particularly younger demographics, um, any thoughts you have about the implications of this? If we if we apply it down to the back to the you know smaller unit, here's an individual family, right? You know, a couple trying to raise their children, or even a single parent trying to raise their children. Um, you know that that sort of scenario, and then of course here is a pastor, uh, and he may be in a multi-staff church, but the, but the, that leadership team is thinking, man, we got to shut the back door here. What what are we going to do? Any thoughts about what we might uh, offer to parents and to church leaders? Well, that's great. Um, I think that's a great question. I mean, it is one of these challenges because I think some of these some of these challenges that churches face they didn't create. You know what I mean? So, like, I, it, it's it's unfair in some ways yeah. to, to say <laughs> you you pastors, you faith leaders, you you seminary professors. Uh, you need to solve the problems hmm. that are broader, even global yeah. uh, challenges that now face these faith communities. And, and in some ways, it's, it is not a situation in which we can, as churches, go back to some other time right. where, where it was just better. It's actually, it is, it is adjusting to a new reality. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that Things is probably the more important question of, of, of how do we adjust to this new reality where... Um, 
uh, and there are some things that we can correct. And so I, I don't mean to kind of like just say, throw my hands up in the air. There, there are some things that actually uh, I think are certainly proactive. But how do we adjust to this new reality where we, we undeniably live in a more uh, secular society, um, that there is uh, there are, frankly, just more options. Uh, and so I, I, I don't know if the if the best option is to do the Benedict option and just to create these kinds of uh, that is, I think, antithetical to the evangelical identity that, that we want to be uh, forces for good, that we want to be people who are shaping the world in a positive way. And, and with with the gospel, with love, with with uh, our own uh, kind of families and mission. Uh, that Jesus said that, that, you know, we're not supposed to be taken out of the world that we're, and we're not supposed to be of the world. We're supposed to be into the world. So what does it mean to be into the world now in this new context? Um, and I think it's uh, I mean, I, I think that um, uh, in, in many ways, I think we have to we have to take a good hard look. I mean, I think one of the things that's dry that is undeniably driving young people away from the church is, I think, an uncritical uh, conflation of politics and religion. Uh, in, in ways that um, uh, this is not to say that that Christians ought to be politically agnostic or that un- disengaged. I've never said that, and never want to imply that 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 Christians have to to check their uh, politics or not bring their faith into their own political values. Of course, they do. Um, but to the extent that where like it is becoming a, a common truism that if you are a committed Christian, you vote this way always, and you have no other options, and you you don't question. Who is the leader? It's just kind of like you don't question the coach. You're just a part of the team. Like that's that I think is problematic because I think people read that and they make decisions about Jesus before they actually get a chance to encounter Jesus people. Right. Um, I think that's a hugely problematic thing culturally. Um, and, I, you know, I, I, I do think there is a, a, a reinvestment that needs to be made uh, in authentic faith communities and families uh, raising uh, those kinds of resources. I think I think megachurches and megachurch culture needs to reconsider um, what kind of trends that they're a part of, uh, and and how we have, I think, built built monuments to egos and kind of like broader movements rather than uh, in, investing in, in investing in in smaller uh, smaller communities that may not um, be so be so financially. Uh, uh, rich, uh, mm-hmm. and yet they they are they are more 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 uh, nimble to be able to uh, meet the needs of 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 families and invest in those kinds of communities in more proactive ways. Well, I know one issue that uh, young people in in particular, again, you 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 would know the facts of this better than I would, but at least everything I've seen and read. An issue that's very much a uh, hot button is is justice issues. It could be human trafficking. It could be racism. Right. It could be um, uh, economic injustice. Uh, all kinds of possibilities. But it it does seem to me that um, first of all, the Bible and our Lord had a whole lot to say that uh, speaks <laughs> into justice, and that seems like a good place to start. With uh, you know some meaningful conversations and and even action steps to show again, let's let's just say nuns, which are quite possibly kids who grew up in a Christian home and now they've kind of drifted away. But you know, if somebody said, you know, we're doing something related to justice, you might you might be interested in checking this out. 
Uh, we right. want you to at least get your voice in the conversation. You know, there right. might be some interest in, hmm, maybe maybe there's more here than I thought. Yeah, I mean, I absolutely. I think that has to be. Um, I, I think that should emerge as as uh, a part of the Christian identity in a way that that it now is perceived as something that is more optional that some churches are into some churches are into justice other churches are into small groups you know yeah. like it's like it's something that is just kind of like a a fad thing or something that they're into that season like this this year we're into justice yeah, you know that's like not or, gonna or, work. right or, that, that is not going to work because it's it, it i mean people immediately acknowledge that that is attack on that that is inauthentic that, that it's not something that is a core part of their identity I'll, I'll put it this way i think this is a, a good way to put it so um if, if I were to if I were to talk to a, a group of um, I think really really committed pro life Christians uh, and and I were and I were to say you know uh, you know the the, the hardcore pro life thing is is not a winning is not a winning kind of issue for you guys I mean like people you know it's it's a minority view and and this is uh, and this is something that that uh, the wider culture is going to frown upon I think they would respond. With, uh, they would res- they would respond with, uh, we don't care what the rest of the world thinks. This is right, right? Like this is this is this is right. This is a part of our identity. This is who right. we are. We are pro life, and I think we need to move to that kind of uh, that kind of understanding of a of a Christian's commitment to say justice issues hmm. uh, is is that. Uh, you know, whether it's popular or not, whether whether the the progressives or whether society or whether the media picks up on that and notices and they give us applause for it and the people start coming back because they recognize like whether anybody notices or not, I think it just becomes a part of our it needs to be a part of our identity because right uh, because that is that is what Jesus would have taught or yeah. taught not would have that is what Jesus taught you know and and so to the extent that that can actually become a fully formed part of our our own community identity, that this is who we are as a people. Uh, I think that is, that is not only good for the church because it is, it is something that people will see, but even more important, it, it is because it is righteous. It is, it is, it is Christ-like and holy. Well, and of course the, the, uh, the context in which we have to wrap that is the way that we communicate that also has to be in a Christ-like tone so that yes. um, we, we don't bring this defiance and this, you know, in your face kind of thing. We're going to do what's right, you know, and and we come across as Pharisees. But uh, more, yes. you know, we do this because this is the right thing to do because this is what our Lord is is telling us to do. We're right. sad that you don't agree. Right. Uh, we we don't we don't agree with you, but you know, it's a big world, and we understand you're not with us. But we're going to do our thing and let the chips fall where they may, and uh, you know. By the way, we're going to pray for you, and we're going to love on you, and we're going to do what we can yeah. to help you flourish, just like we're trying to help ourselves. And and that right there, I think, Bill is is a commitment not only to the ends but to the means. And yes. I think both of those are are central because I, I think it is it is unfortunate uh, that I think committed Christians, I, th- I think especially, have gotten the reputation for this within the last ten years of of being willing to sacrifice uh, the means uh, to accomplish the ends. And to say whatever gets the job done, and we're going to be willing to do that, and I think that has been a disaster. That's been a <laughs> losing strategy for sure. It is, it absolutely is. I mean, it's something that you 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 end up you end up making a Faustian bargain yep. to say if I can if I can just have that that victory that W, 
then and then I am willing to compromise in this area. And it is uh, and it is it is something that I think if we are committed to, I think as you're describing, uh, uh, a, a vision for kind of certainly values and justice and all of the things that we believe are are central to what it means to live as a Christian in in today's world. Um, I think it also requires a commitment to sacrificial love, a uh, commitment to turning the other cheek, a commitment to forgiveness and to winsomeness in a way that that we believe uh, Jesus did while he was here uh, and he taught. And um, I think that that is, and, and again, it's it's not just good because that's a winning strategy. It's good because it's righteous. It's good because that is, it's, it, it, would, it would be good if it was a losing strategy. You know what I mean? Like it would, yes. it, it, it's, it, it's it would the, be good. If it, it is was, truly it the right thing effective. to do. Exactly, exactly. So, again, for our listeners to the table, we put together there, you know, we've got to, we've got to show courage. We've got to stand up for what is right and true and biblical and then do it in a compassionate way, mm. you know, that we're the hands, the feet, the heart of Jesus to the world. And uh, Sam Perry, thank you for bringing your <coughs> – pardon me <laughs> – Thank you for bringing your expertise in sociology to bear on this question of why people are leaving the church. Uh, this has just been so instructive and, and insightful today, and I can see we need to have you back for lots of other issues that really need to be considered through a, a lens of sociology as well as theology. Uh, I want to thank all of you for listening to The Table Podcast today. Be sure and subscribe to us in your favorite podcast stream, uh, and join us the next time. For The Table Podcast, I'm Bill Hendricks. Thanks for listening to The Table Podcast. Dallas Theological Seminary. Teach truth. Love well. This episode was brought to you in part by Just These Guys. You know, a pastor and a psychologist team up to break down scripture and psychology, empowering you to transform by the renewing of your mind. Listen today at justtheseguys.podbean.com or wherever you get your podcasts. Just these guys, you know?